I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Welcome. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. How's it going? We are back. Back again. Wait, wait, wait. Guess I, who's I'm back? for the listeners. <laughs> Tell a friend. Go on. Guess who's back. 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 Womp, womp, womp. Guess He's what? Dwaretsky, the real Dwaretsky, the other Dwaretsky is kind of all Dwaretsky. <laughs> I've created a monster because nobody wants to talk about COVID no more. They want new things. I'm chopped liver. Well, if you want new things, this is what I'll give you. A little bit of horse mixed with some D.E. Wormer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm vaccinated, I'm shot, and I'm, and I'm constipated. <laughs> but I'm drinking dewormer and it's dilated, my uh, rectum. Uh, and I'm talking no. out of my ass and you see it's going just so fast. Okay. I think that's good enough. Yeah. Hey, so season eight, yeah. we've made it. Well, uh, that's actually our intro right now, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> like that's not getting edited out, people, because guess who edits all of these episodes? <laughs> that's right. You yeah. Were, you were dedicated to a little bit of uh, Eminem, or as I like to call my white rapper name, Papa Pill. Yeah. However, it's October, right. and while I usually prefer to focus the entire month of October on spooky things, there is one spooky yes. thing still around that we have to talk about. It comes in all kinds of variants. But There's before the... we get to that, I do want to spend at least the first couple episodes kind of reaching out to those of you who have not yet been vaccinated. Why not? Um, we mm-hmm. will do our best to kind of 
explain away any of your concerns or fears. And I think the best way to start that off is there's a fancy new trend going around in certain communities as a possible as a possible COVID treatment. And uh, well, I don't know how to talk about this. I I... (laughs) let's let's put it this way. Let's let's go this way. There have been COVID is brand new. We have all been frantically looking for treatments that work, especially preemptively, you know, and, and then especially when you have severe infection to pull people back from the brink. In the midst of all of these, there has been some questionable choices, misinformation, and, you know, what, what is it called? The, a lie can make it halfway around the world before the truth has its chance to put its pants on. Boots. I think th- boots. Pants? Yeah, truth. Because <laughs> liars have pants on fire, but the truth needs to get its oh, boots on. However, it's boots on. That's right. There you go. So I think this was one of these cases, and it has lodged itself, as many things have, in different types of conversations which don't belong in medicine. I think that's fair. So we're going to try and start redirecting some of these conversations. Now, one of the big ones that I've been hearing about, oh, I'd say the latter half of the summer, is Mm -hmm. a very popular veterinary medication and sometime human med has been Mm -hmm. promoted uh, a little falsely, well, a lot falsely, as as a treatment for COVID. And of course, we're talking about ivermectin. Mm -hmm. And this really got me wondering, because it's not like somebody just woke up, you know, even among the misinformation crowd, it's not like you just wake up and suddenly decide this is our, you know, drug du jour. So I wanted to do a deep dive into ivermectin and really find out first, what do we actually use it for and where all the fascination or idea to use it as a COVID treatment came for. So there will be links included. I encourage you forward this to your friends who are vaccinated, who aren't. We're really going to be leaning on the education aspect of this. And since we're a radio show, we literally can't judge you. You can say anything you want against <laughs> us right now. Go on. I'll wait. <laughs> Okay. See, do you feel better? I know I do. (laughs) Now that we've gotten all of the bad blood out of the way, let's move on to the fun, the education and hop in our way back machine. Oh, absolutely. And this is some of the favorite part of what we do, which is to actually learn how we got here and not just, you know, reign of facts kind of thing, you know, because everything has a story. And you may ask yourself, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Let in the days go by. Let the water hold me down. That's right. Music, musical clips are coming back. Let's go back all the way to the late 1960s. We'll head over to Japan, Tokyo's Kitasako Institute, where land of giant uh, robots and microbiologists, <laughs> where one of the microbiologists, Satoshi Omara, was hunting for new antibacterial compounds. As we have covered in previous seasons, you find a lot of them in soil. So there were a bunch of dirt hunters around the world. Omura-san happens to find 
a soil sample collected near a golf course southwest of Tokyo. Why a golf course? Well, I don't know how he was doing his research, and I'm not here to judge. But (laughs) in this soil sample was a bacteria that was remarkably effective against worms. It was a new species, baptized Streptomyces avermictilis. Now, Mm -hmm. Mr. Omura was unable to do all of the scientific heavy lifting by himself, so he sent a lot after screening these cultures in vitro or in the lab, he would bottle them up and send them 10,000 kilometers away to New Jersey Merck Research Labs. Hey, how you doing? Where his collaborator over on the Jersey Shore, William Campbell, <laughs> would get in okay. some uh, science tan laundry and check check the effectiveness of these bacteria against worms infecting livestock and other animals. So he's able to do the animal studies where he's at. And you get, you know, beautiful, like, replicability studies. Yeah. So this new compound from Streptomyces avermectilis was called ivermectin. It first was approved as a product for animal health in 1981 and soon became the top-selling veterinary drug in the world. Uh, There's a couple reasons (laughs) for this, and we're going to go through a whole history before we get to the part that I'm sure a lot of you are interested in. What the hell does this have to do with COVID? But despite decades of searching, Avermectilis is the only source of Avermectin ever found. As such, Omura and Campbell won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 2015 for their discoveries concerning a novel therapy against infections caused by roundworm parasites. So that's the shortest version of this story. Two scientists, Mm -hmm. one in Jersey, one in Japan, found a bacterium in a golf course that had a remarkable (laughs) effect against parasitic worms, and it became so effective that uh, they marketed it as a veterinary drug. So (laughs) what makes ivermectin so fancy and sexy? Well, it's the world's first endecticide. What does that mean? Santosh? Yeah, it it kills the endectos. Right. What's an endecto? (laughs) I think we're putting together like endo and ecto in this little, uh, it's a portmanteau, right? So endoparasitic, parasites are anything that goes inside of your body so we we do think of them often as nematodes you know worms and and those kind of things but there are a variety of others um and then even all the way down to single cell parasites but that's not going to be included here like toxoplasma what i work on and then ectoparasites are the stuff that live on us so outside of our body and then require us to get nutrients and feed so um uh, you know lice uh body lice and then um scabies is another Uh. good one it's an ectoparasite yeah so these guys they really there's there's some part of their life cycle for either of these where they need a host like they they can't just go out and get their food all on their own from you know what we call free living uh, so that's that's what these are. So endo and ecto side means it kills endo and ectoparasites. So so the world's first endecticide, a drug Yay. with an activity against a wide variety of internal and external parasites, from mm-hmm. nematodes to arthropods, 
Also, surprisingly, although we're going to talk about the caveats to this, it is in general yeah. astonishingly safe for humans when used correctly. <laughs> this is because the drug acts by binding to very specific channels on the cell called glutamate channels that play mm -hmm. a very important role in insects, but a much less important role in mammals. And when I say less important, I mean that we keep all our glutamate channels in the gated community behind the blood-brain barrier. Insects just have these channels all over their body. In addition right. to its relatively high safety profile, no convincing evidence of drug resistance has been found among the major diseases this is used to treat, despite 30 years of continued use. We're only maybe just starting to see some resistance show up in a few parasites. But as Santosh mentioned, it's good against internal parasites like the onchocerco worms and external mm -hmm. parasites like head lice and scabies. Every time I even say that word, I have to scratch it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you do have to, yeah, you have to either get used to it or just, you know, listen, I'm about to say lice, uh, <laughs> move on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's so, not all. In addition to yeah, being yeah. an effective thing against, you know, all these different parasites, the observation that mosquitoes who fed on individuals who have been treated with ivermectin have a shorter lifespan, which inspired the idea of using the drug as a weapon against malaria-transmitting mosquito communities. And that is led by ISG Global in the Bohemia Project, who is testing the impact of giving this drug to entire communities as well as their livestock to prevent endemic, uh, endemic malaria areas building up their mosquito yeah. population. Boy, was that a tongue twister. No, no, no. That's that's really, really good. So the whole idea here is you do have a, a good amount of this drug which stays in your intestinal lumen and can attack endoparasites, which are in the intestinal lumen. And then just like you were saying, Josh, for ectoparasites, right? So scabies, for instance, there's going to be a certain amount then that gets from bloodstream out to tissues. So your skin, and then these little animals, which is what they are, they, they pick it up. Okay. They've got the glutamate gated chloride ion channels. This is in the nerve and muscle cells of all these little invertebrates, so insects and worms and all these kind of things. And now this is the cool thing, Josh, is you're not really like killing them. You're just paralyzing. And if it can't move, then a lot of the times, like an intestinal parasite, it'll detach and you poop it out, which by the way, doctors always warn your patients <laughs> that you're up. <laughs> if you confirm that they have roundworms and you give this to them, it will show up in the toilet and they'll be wriggly and kind of spastic from the thing. And then for scabies and stuff like that, they'll freeze in place and your white cells and your immune system and actually eosinophils and mast cells can actually clear them away and destroy them. So they found this drug that's great for use on parasites. Um, yeah which is primarily affecting livestock. So the origins of ivermectin as a human drug are almost inextricably linked with a disease called onchocerciasis, the ocho, oh, yeah. or river blindness. Uh, <laughs> no, no, onco. 
Onco Circa. Yeah, well, which means black nails, but I prefer to refer to it yeah. as the Ocho yeah. for river blindness. <laughs> ah, I've got the yeah. Ocho. Yeah. Well, no, but in that case, you have to call it the Ancho. The Ancho. Right, well, anyway, river blindness is a mm. human worm disease caused by infection with Ancho Circa volvulus worms, <laughs> which are yes. transmitted by the bite of infected of infected black flies, which breed, mm-hmm. interestingly, in highly oxygenated, fast-flowing rivers and watercourses. Very different environment than mosquitoes that tend to right. breed in stagnant, uh, locked-in pools and ponds, uh, lakes and streams. Mm-hmm. So, or if you have stuff around your yards and stuff that can like collect water. Yeah, so these are fast-flowing. Um, after mm-hmm. mating, female worms can release, you know, something like up to a thousand worms a day for <laughs> ten to fourteen years. So, so just yeah. imagine yeah. something like a thousand worm babies just chilling, crawling around your body for a decade, uh, and when they die, they just die wherever they happen to be and cause a variety of conditions that include skin rashes and lesions, intense mm-hmm. itching from you know a bunch of corpses in your skin edema or swelling of your limbs from fluid correct collecting around those corpses in your skin skin depigmentation that's the yeah uh yep skin depigmentation so vitiligo and they can also invade the eye causing visual impairment and blindness for those living down by the river (laughs) yeah there's all these it, it gets really really scary so there are places where this is just endemic, right? And we're trying to wipe these out, not because they take life, but because they cause disability in large amounts. And when that happens, you know, we we hate to see people die in medicine and public health. But what happens when you get disability is you get a slowdown of humans being able to be productive and you know, needing and using resources in order to live with that disability. Yeah. So very striking elephantiasis when it gets into your lymphatics, your lymph, you know, system can't drain from your legs. So you just get these big, gigantic fluid filled legs, looks like an elephant. And then river blindness is when one of these little microfilariae get trapped actually in the globe of your eye. <laughs> and we can actually, I know this sounds creepy, Josh, but you know, when you do a direct ophthalmoscopic exam, you can actually see it <laughs> swimming around. Yeah, you see uh, a worm swimming in somebody's eyeball. Very disturbing. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. by my admittedly twisted standards. So let's yeah. get to clinical trials. When did they start using this in humans? Well, again, clinical trials began in 1981 over in Africa, which mm-hmm. is one of the continents most affected by river blindness. The first trial was 32 patients in Senegal, followed by another trial in Paris among 20 West African immigrants. These were both independently mm-hmm. organized and funded by Merck, with a staff member, Dr. Mohamed Aziz, being the driving force behind them. So he started the study in Senegal with safety Mm -hmm. at the forefront of his mind, meaning he began with the lowest possible dose of five micrograms per kilogram. So one millionth of a gram, if I remember my my prefixes correctly. 
No, that's, yeah, absolutely correct. So this is phase one, right? This is what phase one looks like. Yeah. So at the end result of those phase one trials, he found that a single dose of ivermectin at about 30 micrograms per kilogram of body weight substantially Mm -hmm. decreased the number of skin microfilaria. And this was an effect that lasted for at least six months with no serious side effects being observed. Now, again, I point out no serious side effects. It still had side effects. The the subsequent study in Paris confirmed these results and showed the upper limit of safe doses were 200 micrograms per kilogram in humans. So that is the safe range in humans, 30 millionths of a gram to 200 millionths of a gram per kilogram of body weight. Once, with respect to the official registration, they found out focusing on just a single patient approach, they said, great, if we give us one-time dose, you can actually kill off the worms and prevent them from coming back for at least six months to a year. Well, Merck, as a pharmaceutical company, said, great, let's submit this to the French health authorities in 1987 based on the studies of the first 1,200 patients, and they expected to receive approval within that same year, which they did. At that time, Mm -hmm. they indicated a price would be about $3 per tablet, so a full year of treatment would cost $6, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but if you are living in some of the developing world countries, $6 for a year is beyond an affordable amount for those most in need. I think there are some areas where like, you'd have to choose between food and (laughs) doing this. $6 a year doesn't sound like a lot until you realize how little some of the developing world has in terms of resources. But Mm -hmm. back to Dr. Aziz, who had started his work at the World Health Organization and then moved over to Merck. He wanted to focus on a community group and worked with another group called TDR who said, if we give all of this to a community, then all the worms who would have been infecting that community die out and we essentially quasi-vaccinate? That's not quite the right (laughs) word. No, no, no. This is So this is uh, community eradication. So this is different, right? Because vaccination is prevention. In this case, you're doing widespread public health treatment. So this is, yeah, this is the one of the deworming campaigns that we have. Mm-hmm. So 13 different community phase four trials were conducted after the approval of the drug in 1987. 13 trials between 1987 and 1989 were given mm-hmm. with over 120,000 doses of ivermectin administered. Of the 13 different community trials, there were all successes in Liberia, Cameroon, Malawi, Guatemala, and Nigeria, spending about US $2 million in total. Uh, okay. Less than the bad. budget of NASA for a year. Yeah. Not too shabby. <laughs> well, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. Uh, did you say billion? Million. Million. Oh, that's way less. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two million US, you know, pocket change to to do these trials to figure out, can you achieve community eradication? Yeah, yeah. And just imagine, Josh, what you're aiming for is to lift entire communities out of 
chronic disability. That's ultimately like what you're aiming for so that they can reach their best potential, whatever they want to do. Now, the collaboration between this TDR group and Dr. Aziz over at Merck led to one of the most impressive and humanizing corporate moves ever performed, uh, I guess, before, well, now. Uh, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> once it was approved and with unheralded commitment in an unprecedented move never seen before, Mectazan, which was the brand's name for ivermectin, was donated by the manufacturing company Merck to treat river blindness, onchocerciasis, in all endemic countries for as long as it was needed, free of cost. Think nice. about That's that. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Think yeah. about a pharmaceutical company came up with a individual treatment drug that would work, mm-hmm. could clear yep. a disease, and agreed to just donate it to the developing world until that disease was donated. Now, that didn't stop them from selling until- it individually in other places. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was the drug donation program was the very first, the largest, the longest running, and to this date, the most successful, and has proved a model for all others that have followed and has been distributed in the third world free of charge to those in need since 1988. It does show kind of the power of what a large pharmaceutical company can do when you know they put patients and communities first. And the realization was really here that, okay, A, we're making profits off other things, but B, you know, yes, th- there are going to be other instances where in non-endemic areas, ivermectin is going to be prescribed for people who have scabies in the developed world somewhere, or they're suffering from roundworm. And Josh, I don't think Merck, because that was all kind of human grade right so they they didn't dip into like the the animal side no they still sold it for animals unless it was being used in this community eradication projects when again it would be donated right 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 right. so in that case they still make plenty of profits in the agricultural sector and i said we we got enough to go around it's fine and and this is really really important that this community gets permanently rid of like a, an 800 pound gorilla just sitting in their place, just, you know, or holding their 800 pound cow life. infected with enough worms to take down. <laughs> to, to serve it around. Exactly. You do have to couple this with environmental kind of mitigations as well, Josh, because you, you talked about where the flies bred and um, where the other, like the eggs were laid and that kind of a thing. And this effort is absolutely amazing. I love it. Now, animals being much larger and heavier than your average human, for the most part, required Mm -hmm. much higher doses and slightly different studies. And that's kind of why this became a very popular veterinary drug. Uh, One of the best selling Mm -hmm. because most animals tend to get infected by parasites. So during the course of these studies, again, we found out more about the actual physiology and the science of how it worked. And it was discovered that it was specifically these glutamate gated chloride channels that were the target of ivermectin, which opened up a whole new spectrum of possibilities because, as we said, although glutamate channels play fundamental roles in nematodes and insects, they are hidden 
behind the blood-brain barrier in humans. So you couldn't get those same paralyzing effects on us that you could on them. It would paralyze with, the with the appropriate dose. <laughs> so ivermectin, while yeah. paralyzing the body wall and pharyngeal or swallowing muscles in nematodes, has no impact in mammals uh, where GABA receptors are located in the brain. In mm-hmm. however, this is where we start getting into some of the interesting science and what finally led me to discovering where the hell all this fascination for an anti-parasitic drug came in for a antiviral treatment approach. Mm -hmm. And how did this anti-parasitic go viral? And I don't care what you say, Josh, I came up with that first. Well, in binding (laughs) to the glutamate channels, it showed that ivermectin actually disrupts neurotransmission regulated via these channels and nematodes. That's a little bit of a a loaded sentence. So I'm going to go back over it again. Mm -hmm. It disrupts the neurons in the worms. So it doesn't actually paralyze the worms themselves through a direct action. Like the worms take this drug and they're paralyzed like some sort of crazy dart. What it does is it gets in and it stops all their neurons from talking to each other and communicating. And that is what causes them to be paralyzed. So it disrupts neurotransmission. But Mm -hmm. in cultures, meaning when you actually throw the drug directly onto the bugs in in a Petri dish, the drug has pretty much no effect on these microfilaria when administered at pharmacologically relevant concentrations. So... Giving ivermectin does not kill the worm directly. It disrupts the worm's ability to regulate its own body, and then the worm dies. So in the simplest terms, it's now believed that this drug disrupts the fundamental host-parasite equilibrium. So I'm going to get into a little bit of like deep pharmacology, pharmacokinetics dynamics. We should check in with our resident pharmacist at one point to confirm this. But oh yeah, absolutely. The half-life of ivermectin in humans is about 12 to 36 hours. So somewhere between half a day to a day and a half from when you take a dose of ivermectin, about a day later, half as much that you started with, it'll be down to that. And then half as much again the following day. So that means it can be persistently active in your system for somewhere around three days based on the recommended human dose. If you recall, I just said, in cultures, in Petri dishes, at those doses for humans, no effect on the worms. But in vivo, in living humans, it actually does start to kill the worms after a brief rise. So at the lowest levels, these dermal worms, uh, not all worms are affected by ivermectin killed in the first few days. So the working theory is that You take the ivermectin drug, it starts to disrupt the communications within the worm bodies. The worms trying to get away from this will actually migrate into deeper layers, subcutaneous fat, connective tissue, and lymph nodes. But then you've disrupted so much of the host parasite equilibrium that they need to survive. They all just sort of start dropping dead out of your body and you poop them out. So the growing body of evidence supports the theory that the rapid worm clearance following ivermectin treatment results not from the direct impact of the drug, but from suppression of the ability of the parasite to secrete proteins 
that enable it to evade the host's natural immune defenses. Did you get that, Santosh? I did. So this is so cool. So this is not just a straight up worm paralyzed, let go, die. You know, that's it's it's so much more complex. This is so cool. So rather than this drug being a gun that you point at worms and kills them directly, what it is is an EMP disrupts all their communications, giving the body's own immune system time to find, hunt, and destroy the worms. Okay. Yeah. So this is our immune arm that you're bringing up is the, uh, the IgE. This is the part of our immune arm that we usually think of as annoying, <laughs> right? So the, the, it's the one that contributes to allergies. So mast cells and histamine and IgE and, and eosinophils, all these little guys, we, we have them and we have them around not to fight off pollen, <laughs> but they living with worms all throughout ever since there were any you know larger animals there have been parasites to feed off of them and there's been an immune system to kind of keep them at bay so they they're already active in trying to do what they can but if you overload it of course you can't clear you live with it you have all these disabilities but you know you just give it a little bit of assistance <laughs> and now it's able to do its thing Josh, I'm amazed. This is so fantastic. I love this. So this actually, this particular property that it doesn't kill the parasites directly, but disrupts communication long enough for the host body's immune system to kill the worms. This is yeah. where that first link with COVID came in. So I'm going to talk about a couple of the studies that were done. And I want to emphasize, even before we go into it, Although I am looking at these and some of the studies are well-designed, some are poorly designed, all of them have agreed consistently there is not enough evidence to recommend any use of ivermectin for COVID treatment. But we are right. going to talk about where people first got this idea in the scientific community. All right? Yes. The warning's yeah. been given? <laughs> yes. This is not in any way, shape, or form an endorsement of ivermectin. I do not endorse it. Stick with getting your vaccine or go to the hospital mm -hmm. where we will give approved treatments. So reports from in vitro or Petri dish studies suggest, as we said, that ivermectin acts by inhibiting the host alpha, beta, important nuclear transport proteins. That's part of a key cellular process that most viruses hijack to enhance infection by suppressing the host's antiviral response. So it is thought that just like with parasites where ivermectin, you know, these parasites secrete camouflage proteins that hide them from the immune system, viruses do something vaguely similar. And the thought is that ivermectin will disrupt the communications that allow those camouflage proteins to be presented. In addition, ivermectin docking or where it attaches to cells may interfere with the attachment of the spike protein in COVID to the human cell membrane. That is why it is thought to be a host-directed agent, meaning it allows the host immune system to be more effective, and that's why it shows such broad-spectrum activity in vitro against a few viruses like dengue, Zika, and yellow fever. 
all which are transmitted by, again, insects or arthropods. So we're still on this parasite and decticide aspect of the ivermectin, even when we're addressing viral infections. Mm -hmm. Despite this in vitro or petri dish activity, exactly zero clinical trials have reported a benefit for ivermectin in vivo for patients with any of these viruses, dengue, Zika, yellow fever, HIV, COVID. None of them have been effective in real life trials, only in a petri dish. There's a few others. Again, ivermectin has been shown to inhibit on a low level the replication of SARS-CoV-2 in cell cultures, petri dish science only. However, achieving the plasma concentrations necessary for the antiviral efficacy seen in petri dishes would require doses of up to 100 to 200 times higher than those currently approved for use in humans. Let's back up and say that again. <laughs> Let's emphasize this part, Josh. Yeah, that's as important. In a petri dish cell culture setting, ivermectin has been shown to kill or inhibit the replication of COVID. That is true. However, the human body is much larger than a Petri dish. To get the blood concentrations necessary to start killing the viruses in the same way they've seen in a Petri dish would require giving doses a hundred times higher than those approved for use in humans. There you go. And, you know, we can equate this to something, Josh. We can We can equate this to... You know, other agents that we think about very simply, rather than something that has a complex, you know, chemical kind of action like this, let's say something like absolutely absurd that you've never put in your body, like bleach, right? Like I'm just pulling something out of the air. So like if you take a concentration of bleach, you do have to increase that concentration by and by and find a little window viruses grow in cell culture meaning that you have to take a cell you know usually fibroblasts or maybe respiratory epithelia so a sample of cells from the lungs or the trachea spread them out on a plate and then the viruses go in they can't replicate on their own right so they have to replicate on that cell layer and now you can take that bleach and you can put it on there and in a certain window you'll inhibit the viral replication, but the cells won't necessarily die. But, you know, you go a little bit outside of that and then boom, you bleach the cells and, you know, cells. Anybody's ever gotten, you know, bleach on their skin or, you know, when you're doing laundry and stuff, you know. So you'd never inject that concentration, whatever you get to, of, of hydro, you know, the chlorine bleach into your, into your veins. I mean, that would be so stupid. Like, even to suggest it would be like dumb, right? So... This is the same exact analogy is you're reaching toxic levels. You had said before, Josh, that these are GABAergic, mean it can bind onto these GABA receptors, which we do have in our brain. Well, if you increase the serum concentration enough in the plasma, some of it will get through to the blood-brain barrier and do really bad things to your head. So now let's talk about what's happening in the community that is promoting ivermectin. I'm really, as I said, trying to be as diplomatic as possible about this because I feel like there may be a lot of people out there who are just 
They're scared and they are open to this misinformation. So this is a judgment-free zone for today. May not always be. Yeah. <laughs> hey, is, I'm being as honest as I can here. But no, judgment-free no, zone for today. So let's absolutely. talk about how this community has kind of seized on these studies, which I'll go back and refer to again in a few moments, and what that result has been. It has gotten so bad that the FDA has had to issue a reminder on their official website and via tweet that people are not horses. And even some of the folks who have managed to obtain veterinary grade ivermectin, so doses sized for an animal like a horse or a steer, which comes up to that hundred level, or if not that hundredfold level, certainly far more than is the safe, non-toxic human level. And they managed to choke down this paste. And in what has been schadenfreude for the internet community, a lot of the folks who are eating ivermectin have developed nasty cases of pooping themselves often in public. Why is this happening? Well, while you are while you are diagnosing with these high levels, you are essentially ingesting poisonous or toxic levels of this drug into your body. And some have noticed another side effect, which they are promoting as a feature and not a bug, the appearance of what they call rope worms. Listen, COVID is a virus. It is not a parasitic disease. If you take an anti-parasitic medication and all of a sudden you start to see what you refer to as worms, there's a couple conclusions that you may draw. One, you had a parasitic disease and not a viral one. Or two, those aren't actually worms. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> yeah, option yeah. number two is what we're going to be talking about. When the ivermectin people say they are expelling rope worms, what they really mean is that they are shitting out their intestinal lining. Yeah, yeah, this is really... I mean, at first, Josh, when I was looking this over, I thought perhaps it was mucus, right? You know, because mucus, when you're done pooping and you have nothing else left to poop, there is a lining of mucus, which is not necessarily your mucosa, the, the actual cell layer, which is important for absorption of food and nutrients. And I thought, okay, it's just a little bit of mucus and it rolls itself up and it looks a little bit like a worm if you don't inspect it too closely and certainly if you don't inspect it under a microscope. But yeah, the, it's far worse than that. It's actually that like they're getting inflammation of the small intestine, large intestinal lining, and they're shedding the lining. So when you take in animal or veterinary level doses of ivermectin that are tens of times stronger than the human grade doses, it essentially reacts in your body like a poison. Your body's first instinct to taking on this massive poison is to essentially say, let's just cut our losses and get rid of everything, giving you massive, unexpected, and spontaneous diarrhea. And in that diarrhea, your stomach will just shed the entire protective mucus lining that protects you from things like oh, stomach acid God. or those. So these to the untrained eye, these strands of mucus lining and st intestinal lining may look like worms, but they're a sign mm -hmm. that your body is quite literally digesting itself in an attempt to expel the poison. Yeah, it, it's trying to save you. It's like, okay, well, okay, we can live without a little bit of, you know, 
stomach lining for just a little bit, but just let's, you know, now, not, let's not kill the whole pure, the human. <laughs> now, separate from the inherent dangers in losing your intestinal lining, that's going to compromise your ability to absorb nutrients from food, which means you're going to get further malnourished. And this is all in people who we're going to say, for the sake of the argument, don't have COVID. These are people who are in good health and taking this because they're worried. Now they're going to have issues until that lining regenerates. There are going to be issues with malnutrition. Now they're going to be Mm -hmm. subject or at risk for a whole host of opportunistic gut infections like C. difficile or even for abscesses because you've taken away your body's natural defenses and bacteria and microbiome along with your intestinal lining which so you can eat food. So <laughs> this is why you don't want to take doses, even if you were going to ignore everything else in this and still take ivermectin for COVID, which we've already kind of covered, really wasn't effective. If you must do it, do not take amounts intended for animals as they are far too strong and will lead to some serious toxic effects in you. Now, I am going to link to a whole bunch of the different studies, I found a big table of all the different studies that have been done to date on ivermectin and COVID. And I looked over them and most of them, here's some of the limitations. They had incomplete information and significant limitations that make it difficult to exclude common causes of bias or apply this or make it a recommended drug. Some of these include The sample size of most of the trials was small. We're talking less than, you know, 50 to 100 people and sometimes not even up to 20. Right. The doses and schedules of ivermectin varied widely across all trials. Sometimes it was given once a day, sometimes twice, sometimes in horse killing amounts, sometimes in human (laughs) safe amounts. Nothing was consistent. Who passed that ethics board? (laughs) Some. Of the ran- some of the controlled trials labeled as randomized were actually open mm-hmm. label studies in which neither the participants or the investigators were blinded to the treatment arms. They knew what drug they were getting versus when they were getting placebo. That's a problem because again, you can if you're looking or expecting to find something, you'll likely find it. Uh, in a bunch of studies, patients received other simultaneous medications such as doxycycline hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, steroids, in addition to ivermectin, which confounded the assessment. Is it really the ivermectin or is it one of these other medications that are being given? Or is it a combination of the two? The severity of COVID in the study participants was not always well described. Were they giving it to people who had just been diagnosed, who were asymptomatic, who were deeply symptomatic, who were near death? Doesn't say. And As such, these study outcomes were not always clearly defined. There's about 30 different studies, but all of them, even the ones that were, you know, poorly designed, really couldn't say we have made a strong enough evidence to expand this out and recommend it for even an emergency use authorization. That is where I think the biggest disconnect between the science and the populace is coming into play. Yeah, I, I think that was beautifully put. I'll go one extra level, Josh, because for whatever damn reason, I think it might have even been Cochrane. Um, they there was a meta analysis performed on all of these kind of collectively, right? And uh, you know, everybody should know this: a meta analysis is not a better version 
of all of the data put together. That's not what that is. That is a synthesis of whatever you have available. However, the meta-analysis is only as good as the studies that you can put into it. So put very simply, garbage in, garbage out. So all those low quality studies and issues with bias and cherry picking, and Josh, some of them didn't undergo peer review, right? They were preprints um, and, and they didn't really make it into journals. These were included in some of these meta-analyses and it, it's 100% wrong to be able to say that, oh, well, actually, if you take all these patients together and you take all of the what do you call it? The um, benefits and those kind of things say, oh, you know what? You had this much over placebo or, or it favors the use of ivermectin and you, you tilt in that direction you know, versus not using it. Well, the, the starting point, your, your starting data is no good. Our end result is this is the stuff. Like this is how it became a massive media thing again within within the circles that mm-hmm. distrust general science. So I hope I've kind of walked you through, yes, there is some potential areas for study open. However, nothing has been shown to be helpful in human studies and the doses at which things might potentially be helpful are known to be toxic and dangerous for you. So this is my plea right. to anyone who is not already a regular listener of this show or has a general distrust of the medical establishment. Hopefully, this has helped. I will provide links in the show notes to these studies so you can at least look over them yourself. I hope you draw the same conclusions from them that we've laid out here. And I encourage you, speak with your primary care physicians. Go get the vaccine. Do what you can to protect yourself and your loved ones so we can finally get out of this perpetual nightmare. The the basic stuff works, and the stuff that we know that works is doing the best. So starting out all the way from masking and social distancing, which, uh, you know, Josh, I especially know that you love as it does social distance. <laughs> and then vaccinating. Holy cow, we have found a beautiful set of vaccines, even against emerging mutant variants you know, where sometimes the monoclonal antibodies fail, but hey, you know what? The vaccine still is efficacy. And what is it? Everybody listening out there, it's not preventing you from getting COVID. It is preventing you from getting very sick from COVID. Okay. And yeah, sometimes we get a superpower that on top of that, it also like slows transmission and actually stops you from getting COVID at all. But no, no, we just want to keep you out of the hospital. We have enough business, thank you. (laughs) And please don't come in asking for ivermectin. Josh, I will put out there right now that because science is science and we are not dogmatic and all these kind of things like this, it's not like the door has been completely shut. COVID is a baby disease. It's brand new. We know nothing about it. There are still ongoing true randomized control trials that are examining ivermectin around the world and they're being conducted i hope (laughs) and a lot of them especially nih driven or nih funded that are well uh, you know ethically done 
and examining this as a, as a true intervention, okay, just hang on just a little bit. We have good interventions for now to help the majority of people from dying, all right? If this one emerges, then Dr. Josh and I will come on and say, hey, we have new evidence. So <laughs> this looks like a job for me. So everybody just follow me because we'll cover a little yeah. controversy and we'll give yeah. you science happily. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, that's it for this week. Join us next week when we will continue our opening appeal to those who are vaccine hesitant. Uh, yeah. If you think I'm vaccine Absolutely. and I want your body Come on, folks, and let me know. In the meantime, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with suggested further reading and links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, get your shot, wear your mask, stay safe, wash your damn hands. Do not panic by toilet paper. You know who I'm talking to. You know who you are out there. And uh, until next time, as always, stay safe. And if you still can, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.